0: Um, if you would uh, turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 9 verse 42 is where we're going to begin I'll be reading that in just a moment Um, we are continuing our uh, several month long now uh, journey through the gospel according to Mark um, with the goal in mind of knowing Jesus of growing in our knowledge of Jesus and I pray growing in our intimate relationship with Christ Jesus. Uh, Today's message is called The Self-Sacrifice That Brings Peace With Others. And I understand that this is probably not on the screen here, so I'll be repeating some things maybe more often than I would normally so that you can take notes. The title is The Self-Sacrifice That Brings Peace With Others. Um, Let's Let's talk about these verses just a little bit first. Um, Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce wrote a book several decades ago uh, called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And that title aptly describes the verses of Scripture that we're gonna read this morning. The verses we're gonna read are all Jesus. This is just Jesus speaking to us. It's not Mark. Uh, entering in a narrative for us. Um, And these hard words of Jesus that we're going to look at today, they're violent, they're shocking, they're grotesque, and they may even seem to be extreme. Yet they're also beautiful, and they're beautiful because they come to us from Christ's heart full of graciousness toward us. He is warning us. He wants good for us. And then let's also consider the context of these verses. Um, earlier, and now weeks ago, um, we covered in Mark's Gospel chapter 8, Jesus refee- revealing through Peter's words that he is the Christ. Jesus the Messiah is now in this second half of the book of Mark, entering into the the final lap, so to speak, of his earthly ministry. And as he heads to the cross, he's now in our verses, taking a particular bit of time to prepare the 12 who have walked with him these past three years. And in fact, he's been doing this for these last several verses. To do this he startles them with the truth that he must die at the hands of the chief priests and elders and be resurrected from the dead and he really needs them to get that so he told them that right after he revealed that he's the christ in chapter 8 and then he he's told them again in chapter 9 just before they travel to capernaum in verse 33. and at this point At verse 33 jesus enters this teaching event with the 12. Um, it's a special time he's instructing the 12 apostles personally um, and he's he's given them three distinct lessons and these lessons all focus on discipleship because the future of the church depends on these men knowing and living out these lessons on discipleship. So the first lesson that we covered a couple weeks ago was from Jesus' mouth, you'll be great in my kingdom, but only as you serve others. And then last week, he taught them to embrace. He says, embrace all of my servants and not just those in your own camp. And then we come to this morning's lesson on discipleship. So let's read. Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another." Here's here's what this message is about, what I'm hoping to convey to you all this morning. Discipleship is a corporate, not just an individual process and goal. Discipleship is a corporate, not just an individual process and goal. And what I mean by corporate is that discipleship is something that we do together and for each other's good. So again, for those who are taking note, um, the message in, in essence is discipleship is a corporate, not just an individual process and goal. And specifically, Jesus is directing the 12 to establish a church community, to be a place where everyone works for the discipleship of everyone else, particularly through personal pursuit of holiness. In essence, Jesus is saying this to the 12, after I've departed, you will grow in gospel mindedness, in righteous character, in ministry ability, but only as you seek this growth together and cooperatively. This must be in the DNA of the church that you establish in my name, that you pursue discipleship altogether rather than individually. Here are the points that we're going to cover. Um, point one, don't cause a fellow disciple to sin. Point two, sacrifice anything that hinders your pursuit of the kingdom of God. And the last one is recognize that the pursuit of holiness is corporate in nature. So point one, don't cause a fellow disciple to sin. Don't cause a fellow disciple to sin. When Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, in verse 42, we need to ask ourselves, who are these little ones that Jesus is referring to? Now, as I had said, um, beginning at verse 33, um, this is all one account. Jesus, in one session with the twelve, teaching and training them. And while he taught them that first lesson on true greatness through serving others, he he took a child into his arms. And in verse 36, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, when we come to verse 42, that child is still in Jesus' arms. And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin the child represents the little ones. He's being used still as an object lesson by Christ. Jesus is using the child to represent anyone and everyone who believe in him. The the little ones who believe they're disciples. Uh, James Edwards echoes many of the commentary writers noting that The saying clearly reinforces the supreme value that Jesus places on common and ordinary disciples, those just like we are. Okay, so that's who the little ones who believe in him are. Now, who's the whoever he's talking about that is causing these little ones to sin? Uh, The whoever in this case could certainly be uh, non-Christian people, uh, the people that we once were—we're uh, we're all well, well aware of the enticements and temptations to sin and un- unbelief that are av- unavoidably present in the world outside of Christ's church. But this doesn't seem to fit the context. After all, uh, we expect unbelievers to be a potential discouraging influence to the faith of Christians, and and Jesus. He expects this as well. Uh, so much more likely, Christ is speaking about his own disciples who cause other disciples to sin. He's speaking um, of his own disciple who would consider himself of greater value than another disciple, who would argue that he or she is of greatest significance or influence in the local church. Jesus is speaking of his own follower who would discredit the work of another christian simply because that other christian is not part of his church or his denomination all of us are the whoever that causes another disciple to sin on that day in capernaum jesus was speaking to the 12 about the 12 and today he's speaking to us and to every christian in this room Believers in Christ can cause other Christians to sin. We can have that effect on each other. We we are affecting each other. The question is, is that effect that we're having for good or is it for ill? Are we a godly or an ungodly influence on the other believers around us? Does this fellowship with me, this is a question I have to ask myself, does fellowship with me bring you closer to God or does it bring you away from him? Does it cause you to more closely reflect his character or does it cause you to walk in another direction? The effect of fellowship with you and with me should be that other disciples are caught up they're caught up in, in the wind that's created by us as we seek God's glory above all things. We each need to consider how we're affecting the others here at Sovereign Grace Church and other disciples who are in our lives, in our family, um, in our neighborhoods, and at our workplaces and at our schools. In what ways can we cause other believers to sin? Um, well the 12 conveniently gave us two examples viewing yourself as better more valuable more honorable than other believers in the church Um, and then they also gave us the example in uh, telling others that their work in Christ is unsanctioned and uh, of no real meaning or value because they're outside of our camp and we can easily think of many other ways that we tempt or may cause other believers to sin Uh, we can we can live out very boldly very confidently our own freedoms in Christ and cause others to sin because that very freedom in their lives is a deep-seated struggle with sin Uh, alcohol consumption would fit squarely in that category our sins against each other can provoke temptations in that other to a sinful response uh, we may be overly critical people we may be that one who seems to act as though he or she is the holy spirit in the life of another and that that, that incessant criticism tears down the faith of that fellow disciple causing another disciple to sin in any of these ways and many more that you can think of th- these are so serious because they lead that disciple away from rather than toward the grace of God in Christ and and it's completely it could be, it could spell completely the destruction of that other's faith, which brings us to Jesus' assessment of causing others to sin. It's, it's very weighty folks. Um, this is what makes this passage, in particular, such a hard saying of Jesus. It would be better, he said, to be thrown into the sea with a huge millstone hung around your neck than it would to cause an ordinary disciple to sin. Causing a brother or sister in Christ to sin is the exact opposite of what we should be doing as Christ followers. You ought to protect and encourage other believers in faith-filled dependence upon Christ. You ought to encourage their pursuit of righteousness. You ought to be showing them the way to Jesus rather than showing them the way away from him. Jesus uses harsh, violent images to sober us to the reality that we affect each other's walk with Christ. Either we affect it so that they walk toward him in grace or away from him in folly. Now, you are freely forgiven people through faith in Christ's death on your behalf. We just sang that. We just celebrated that. That should make you passionate to protect fellow redeemed members of Christ's church here and elsewhere. Experiencing God's saving grace should inspire you to lay down your life in order to help others pursue Christ's righteousness along with you as you pursue him as well. So that's the first point. Second point, sacrifice anything that hinders your pursuit of the kingdom of God. Sacrifice anything that hinders your pursuit of the kingdom of God. So now we're going to look at verses 43 through 48 and in them Jesus continues to speak in a very severe manner but now he just gets plain gruesome with his language here it is if your hand causes you to sin cut it off if your foot causes you to sin cut it off if your eye causes you to sin pluck it out why does the savior use such severe graphic metaphor why is he speaking this way He speaks this way because the consequences of sin are so dire. It is better for you, he says, to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, then with two eyes, to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's an urgent warning spoken once, but he speaks it three times to evoke great alarm in the 12 and in us. Jesus cannot warn the 12. He can't warn us with any more seriousness Or urgency. This is a very serious matter. Jesus believes in hell. He knows it's real. He knows it is torment. He knows that it is eternal. And Jesus knows that it is just. It's just punishment from God for failing to glorify God as God. Or, as John Piper would put it, it's just punishment for failing to treasure God above all things. Now, we could ask was Jesus speaking literally or metaphorically when he described hell as the place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched? And after asking that question, we could also ask, or I could ask you, does it matter? Here's what J.C. Ryle writes about Jesus' description of hell in this passage. Ryle writes, these are awful expressions. They call for reflection rather than exposition. They should be pondered, considered, and remembered by all who claim to be Christians. It matters little whether we regard them as figurative and symbolic if they are one thing at least is very clear. The worm and the fire are symbolic of real things. There is a real hell and that hell is eternal. Jesus' warning will serve different different purposes in people depending on the person's status before God. For those of you who have not repented of your sin the warnings about hell are meant to move you they're meant to move you to enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on your behalf he died on the cross to free you from the guilt of sin and to rescue you from experiencing God's just wrath against you for all of eternity this is true grace. You don't deserve it, but He gave up His life for you. And He wants you to escape this reality, which is called hell. He wants you to enter into His kingdom and to, into peace eternally with God. And I plead with you if you're listening to us, if you're here and this is your state, be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf. I would, I would so enjoy talking to you more about this. If you're wrestling with this idea, Ron would talk to you. The people that know you here would talk to you. Please look into this rescue of Jesus. But in the original context of these words that are spoken by uh, Jesus, he's speaking to redeemed people. He doesn't seem to be speaking to uh, non-believers he's speaking to the ones who he's going to die for and for us those who are in Christ Jesus by faith sin is no longer powerful enough to drag us down into hell Paul told us Romans six fourteen: sin will no longer have dominion over you its power has been cut off and yet God in his wisdom has let sin remain in us to be something that we have to fight. And Jesus called the 12 and he's calling us to take drastic measures to put off sin and to put on righteousness like Christ is righteous. He's, he's already declared you righteous in the divine eternal court. You are already forgiven of your sins. But he's in that forgiveness, we ought to be pursuing righteousness. We ought not to be playing with the fires of hell. He reminds us of the eternal punishment we deserve from which he's saved us. He reminds us of eternal life in his kingdom that we could never deserve, but that he is granting for us. He reminds us the hell we deserve and the eternal life we could never merit in order to encourage us to sever altogether and completely all ties with sin. Jesus uses metaphor and hyperbole in calling us to cut off our hand and foot or to pluck out an eye. He doesn't mean for us ever to take this literally. This sort of Of self-harm is forbidden in the Old Testament, but he is calling us in a very serious manner to consider what our hand brings us to do. What do you do or fail to do in obedience and trust of God? Jesus is calling us to consider where our feet bring us. Where, where do we stray from the path of righteousness and, and, and into the allures of sinfulness? He's calling us to consider what we look upon with these eyes of ours. Are there images? Are there words with which we fantasize or lust or simply distract ourselves, keeping us from doing the things that in Christ we ought to be doing? By using the metaphors of hand, foot, and eye, Jesus is saying that his discipleship covers every area of our life, of our lives. Again, James Edwards, he says it very well, discipleship to Jesus lays a total claim on one's life. In the language of sacrifice, it must be totally consuming or it is worthless. Jesus calls us to a very costly discipleship. He commands each of us to decisively eliminate whatever puts distance between us and between God. Here's an illustration to fill this out for us. On, On Thursday, May 1st, 2003, almost two decades ago, Aaron Ralston tragically, became just about the best illustration possible for this set of verses, but very tragically for him. He had started what should have been a one-day adventure on Saturday, April 26, five days previous, in a very remote part of Canyonlands National Park, which is in central eastern Utah. But his day that started with mountain biking and then turned into canyoneering, which, as best as I can tell, is like really dangerous hiking, uh, climbing over things, using ropes, rappelling, all through this very narrow canyon that gets incredibly narrow at times. It turned horribly bad when he's doing this canyoneering and he climbs over an 800 pound chalk stone. So it's this stone that's caught in this very narrow passage. And as he gets down from the stone, it dislodges, slams his left hand out of the way, but pins his right wrist to the wall of the canyon. That began an excruciatingly painful, obviously very, very scary and lonely time. 127 hours for this man. Quite amazingly, He survives for five days pinned against that rock. He survives dehydration. He survives hypothermia. It's very cold at night in this canyon in Utah. He survives sleeplessness. He cannot rest, and for five nights he doesn't. By that fifth day, Aaron had already recorded videos with parting words to all his... He recorded videos saying goodbye to each of his family members. He had already recorded a will because he expected to die here. Here's how much he expected to die with the knife that he had on him. He carved into the rock R.I.P. October 75 O.C.T. 75 Aaron his name A.R.O.N. April 03. That's when he determined on that fifth day, he had thought about amputating his arm, but it just seemed too dangerous, too much of a risk. He hoped that help would come, but now he's five days out, no help is coming. And he determines that he has to take very drastic action in order to save his life. So he does unspeakable things to his arm. I read this book, it was so difficult to read it. His bones were not broken, so you can imagine what he has to do first. And then he uses a dull knife from a multi-tool set and works at it for an hour to sever his arm, his hand from his arm. Now what's amazing about that is how Aaron describes finishing That process. He described it in his book Between a Rock and a Hard Place, very aptly named, and he says, for the second time, this man is not a believer as far as I understand, for the second time in my life I am being born. This time I'm a grown adult and I understand the significance and power of this birth as none of us can when it happens to us the first time. I'm free. This is the most intense feeling of my life. I fear I might explode from the exhilarating shock and ecstasy that paralyzed my body for a long moment as I lean against that wall. God is calling us to sever ties with sin. No doubt we should feel just as much exhilaration in seeing that job well done. What is the sin that came to mind as I started talking about sin this morning? Came to your mind as I started talking? That's probably the one that you should be thinking about. What is, what is the hand, the foot, the eye that acts as a conduit for that sin? Are you willing to cut off whatever it is that is enticing you to sin against God even if it seems like what you're cutting off is the most indispensable thing in your life that is point two it's a very serious work point three recognize that the pursuit of holiness is corporate in nature recognize that the pursuit of holiness is corporate in nature It it happens together. We're going to look now at verses 49 and 50, the last two verses in this teaching. Jesus ends this teaching by taking up the subject of salt. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We're going to break this section down into the two commands that Jesus gives in verse 50. The first is, have salt in yourselves, and the second is, be at peace with one another. So, what is this salt that Jesus is telling us we have to have in us? Well, we don't have to look very far to get the answer to that question. We just talked about it. Verses 43 through 48 covers it and answers the question quite well. Christians must take drastic action to remove from their lives anything that keeps them from growing in personal relationship with God through Christ. We must cut off everything that hinders our walk with Christ. So the salt that we need is an unswerving, unhindered devotion to follow after Christ. Commentators, uh, Longman and Garland write that salt is the disciples spirit of devotion and self-sacrifice to Jesus Christ and his gospel and another set of commentators Zuck and Walford uh, agree by writing here salt depicts what distinguishes a disciple from a non-disciple a disciple is to maintain his allegiance to Jesus at all costs and to purge out destructive influences. So that's the first command in verse 50. Um, the first command, have salt in yourselves. Have 100% allegiance to Jesus Christ. And the second command is be at peace with one another. Now this is the point I really want us all to get. It would, it would seem intuitive to view the cutting off and plucking out commands of christ as as individual work as in an individualistic sense jesus is he is calling each of you to sacrifice the seemingly invaluable parts of your life in order to um, more freely and more beneficially pursue joy and satisfaction in him that's your job to do it's not someone else's job to cut off your spiritual limbs your invaluable parts but I've proposed that discipleship that the discipleship that Jesus calls us to is corporate in nature it's a corporate process with a corporate goal and not just an individual process and goal Jesus is saying That as we individually sacrifice important and seemingly necessary parts of our lives in our effort to rid ourselves of sin, that as we do this, we are serving not just our own good, but the good of others, the good of the church. And here are my reasons for saying this. First, the other two discipleship lessons of Jesus indicate this. He gave the 12 in this bigger teaching two other lessons on discipleship in verses 33 through 37 Jesus addressed the disciples erroneous efforts to outdo one another in greatness and he told them that true greatness lies in serving others and then in verses 38 through 41 Jesus corrected the 12 for their us versus them mentality toward others who were working in the name of christ and his gospel ministry jesus earned, urged his 12 to embrace everyone who ministers in the name of christ because they too would be rewarded by him so that's the first reason the context of all of this and all the discipleship talk is relational second jesus started this teaching vignette in verse 42 by warning them not to cause others to sin that is Jesus started his teaching on sin by calling them to protect others to protect each other he gave them an other-centered warning before he gave them the self-preserving self-centered warning so again it's about others and relationship third and maybe the most striking reason to see this teaching on sin as communal and not just individualistic, is the way that Jesus closes his lesson. He says, oh, it, would, it would be natural if we expected Jesus to say to the twelve that the goal of these spiritual amputations were greater holiness, um, increased joy, more contentment, growing experience of peace with God but but Jesus doesn't give them any of these answers as the goal. Instead, Jesus closes this discipleship instruction on sin by saying have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Taking drastic action to kill sin re- will result in greater personal holiness but Jesus's ultimate goal for the community of believers is peace with one another what he's saying is that individualistic individual pursuit of holiness will permeate like leaven. it'll permeate the entire body of believers and ultimately create a group holiness and with it result in peace with one another the savior starts this vignette with protect others from entering into sin and he ends it with be at peace with one another and he does this to keep us from thinking that our discipleship is a solo process with solo goals and solo benefit Jesus is always and will forever be making himself a people a people for himself, a community of brothers and sisters who worship God and grow in grace together and not alone. Killing sin in your personal life serves that bigger communal purpose. Let's go ahead and have the uh, worship team come on up here. Uh, I'll make some final comments and we'll pray. Our individual pursuit of holiness has an uplifting effect on the entire church on the local body now how that happens may seem a bit mysterious but it is real nevertheless when each member of the church is sacrificing everything that hinders their pursuit of christ and his kingdom it sets a tone For the entire church, it's that leaven that spreads and becomes a good agent in the church. When someone confesses conviction of sin in community group, it inspires those who hear that confession to consider their own lives and to cry out to God to do that same work of conviction and making holy in them. Watching a a brother or a sister fight along with the Spirit's power, the Spirit of Christ is at work in this fight against sin. Watching that brother and sister fight for months and years against an especially tenacious sin with a good outcome, with a decrease in sin, an increase in righteousness, That gives hope to the ones who get to see that happen. Hope that God will do the same sanctifying work in them. When we each pursue Christ and his righteousness with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have the same effect on each other, on the church, as that great cloud of witnesses described in Hebrews 11 and 12. We encourage each other in faithful pursuit of christ and in pursuit of his righteousness just as noah abraham moses rahab david encourage us in faith in god we benefit the benefit we experience as we as we pursue holiness together in the local church is very much like what the inspired writer of hebrews wrote in hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 so let's close and let me read this passage therefore since we are so surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses we are surrounded by so great a group of people pursuing christ let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race the race set before us looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of god let me pray for us father um, we need you to do this work of discipleship in us father we are so glad to be your redeemed people We're so glad that the Savior can speak of hell and our eternal torment does not come to mind because you have won our victory on our behalf. You have saved us from what we deserved and you have given us so great a gift that we would have fellowship with you through Christ and by your spirit for all of eternity. Father, we ask, Lord God, that you would make us a holiness-pursuing people out of the gratefulness that we have for your making us your own sons and daughters. Father, would you please, Lord God, make us to be um, out of that saving work in us and out of our gratefulness for it, Lord God. Would you make us to be ones who lay down our lives in helping others to avoid sin? helping others, Lord God, to pursue righteousness, Lord God, that we would protect them, Lord God, and that we would not cause them to sin. Father, would you please, Lord God, make us each to be people who are serious because you have called us to this serious work, serious about ridding ourselves of this remaining sin. Father, we want to be pleasing people to you. We are so thankful that you have declared us righteous so that we can now safely, confidently kill sin before it kills us. Father, would you please, Lord God, cause us to very willingly and very gladly and in worship to you cut off everything that separates us from you. Let's be serious about this, Lord God, and I pray, Lord God, that you would bring us serious joy in getting rid of sin, that you'd bring us serious joy and contentment and peace father god as we do this work by the power of your holy spirit father and let this be a leavening agent in this entire church lord god i pray father that you would let each of us pursue righteousness in a way that affects the other father god would you please move among us lord god and make us an increasingly holy people Father, would you please, Lord God, increasingly make us at peace in unity with one another. Would you do this, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us sing.